0: And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray once again together. Gracious Father, we pray that the truth we just sang about it would indeed fill our hearts as we recognize you are King. You are Lord, you are worthy of our worship each and every moment of every day. And God, as we come now to your word again, as we look at uh, this letter that you wrote to this church in Smyrna, uh, God, may you give us eyes to see the reality of life as it is, that we would see the truth about trials and tribulations and difficulties, that we would see not just those trials and problems, but that we would actually see what you are accomplishing in them and through them. And so, God, just as you loved that precious church in Smyrna, God, we recognize you love us and you care for us and you want to teach us and to grow us. So we pray that you would accomplish your good work now in us and through us, fill our minds, correct our thinking, uh, lead us into greater expressions of joy and worship and trust. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated, and as you do so, please open once again to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This morning we will be considering Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna. And as you turn there, I want to give a word of thanksgiving uh, for the message that was preached last week. I am so thankful for Ray and for his willingness to preach and to teach and to introduce these seven letters to the seven churches and for him to preach about what jesus wanted to say to that church in ephesus brothers and sisters what we heard last week i mean i heard it after the fact i listened later on but what we heard last week it was a great sermon it was a great you say how do you know it was a great sermon several reasons number one a great sermon is faithful to the text A great sermon explains the meaning and it unfolds the significance of what God wants to communicate and has communicated to his people. A great sermon helps to explain, clarify, illustrate, and apply the truths and the principles that we find here. Second, a great sermon encourages worship. A great sermon seeks to inspire, a, a growing, it seeks to fuel a growing love for God and a love for one another. It is never just a mere intellectual exercise. No, listen, a great sermon, like we heard last week, it leads somewhere. No, more importantly, it leads to someone. It leads to the Lord Jesus Christ to treasure Him, to see Him, to follow Him and to never forget that He is our first love. That we are called to know Him more, to follow Him more closely, to walk with Him daily. So I'm so thankful for what Ray shared last week, thankful for the effect that it had on my own heart and mind and for the benefit that it is for our church family because we need that continual reminder that we are in such danger daily of walking away from our first love. Jesus. Jesus, who is our Savior. Jesus, who is our Lord. Jesus, who is our King. And it is Jesus who now says these words to his church in Smyrna. If you're in Revelation 2, read with me as we begin in verse 8. Revelation 2, 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear will not be hurt by the second death. That's amazing. That's amazing. And as we begin to think about this text, as I was studying and reading this text this week, my heart and my mind kept being drawn back to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter one, verses twenty to twenty one, where where Paul would write these words. I think this expresses so much of uh, what God desires for his People coming out of hearing a word like this to the church in Smyrna. Paul would write in Philippians 1, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For, to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. The church in Smyrna needed to know this. The church in Smyrna needed to believe this. And if, and if you are in Christ, you need to know this as well. You need to believe this, that to be in Christ and to die is gain. But brothers and sisters, you may hear that or you may be visiting this morning and you think that sounds like crazy talk. That sounds like nuts. Why is that the case? Why should uh, we not be ashamed of Christ and the gospel when the world says that it is foolishness? Why should we, like Paul describes here, have Full courage. Why should we want Jesus to be honored in our bodies, whether by life or by death? How about just by life? How, How about we just do away with the death part and I'll say, yes, Jesus, be honored in my life. And let's forget about the death part. Why? What's the point? What's going on here? How can Jesus honestly say these words to these believers in Smyrna about their faith, about their life, and about their possible death? Well... Before we answer any of those questions, and before we jump into verse 8 proper... We're first going to talk about the city of Smyrna in general. We need to get uh, some context on this church. We need to get some context on this situation, on this historical setting. You can see from the map on the screens, at least I think th- I think we have another map to put up there. It's the one that we've shown for a few weeks. You can see that Smyrna is north of Ephesus. So last week we talked about e- Ephesus and then as you go along the way that the trade route would have gone and the postal route route would have gone along. You go 35, 40 miles north and you come to Smyrna and Smyrna still exists today. It is in modern day Turkey. It has a new name. They don't call it Smyrna. They call it Izmir, and you can go and visit Izmir, and it is beautiful. It is a port city. It is right there by the coast and it is modern and it is beautiful. But as we think about Smyrna back in John's day, as we think about Smyrna back when Jesus was uh, giving this letter to John, to give to these believers, there are, I believe, seven important points of background that we should keep in mind. The first is this noted on your outline Smyrna was a very large city, very large city, with possibly 200,000 people living there. And, brothers and sisters, God has a heart of compassion for these 200,000 people. God is saving, God is calling people to Himself out of these 200,000 people. And we will see that God is going to use his bride, his church right there in Smyrna to be a powerful witness, to be a powerful light to the reality of the victory of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to use his people to be a bright light in this very dark city. Next, number two noted on your outline, Smyrna was famous uh, because it is reported to be the birthplace of Homer, not Simpson, but the Greek poet. Uh, Homer, who lived about 750 years before the birth of Christ. Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, those things that you had to read. Perhaps you suffered through them in high school or college. The fact is, Smyrna was a hip, cool, sophisticated, intellectual city. The people of Smyrna... They were proud to be from Smyrna. They were glad to be from Smyrna. It was a, it was a happening place. It was a, again, hip, cool, intellectual place to be from. This leads us to our next point, number three on your outline. Smyrna has a long and interesting history, and you can read about it. It was founded in about 1000 B.C. It was then destroyed later in 600 B.C., but it was then rebuilt by one of Alexander the Great's generals. And listen, when when it was rebuilt... It was rebuilt with great care and it was rebuilt with great money and it was rebuilt with great intention. It was a beautiful city. In fact, uh, some historians called Smyrna the glory of Asia, the glory of of Asia. It was filled with temples to various Greek and Roman gods. It had a huge amphitheater that, that, that could seat upwards of 20,000 people. It was known for its uh, rich uh, entertainment and for its musical excellence. It was a fascinating, beautiful place to live. But not only that, number four, note this on your outline, Smyrna gets its name from one of its chief exports, which is myrrh, 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 which was used in the embalming process, myrrh, which was used in the making of various perfumes, myrrh, which was a very costly and an and expensive liquid, myrrh, and we sang about this this morning, myrrh, which was one of the gifts that was given to Jesus while he was still yet very young. Remember the wise men and the magi? And they came to Jesus and they brought him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Myrrh that possibly came from from Smyrna. It was, a again, a very rich, wealthy place to live. Next, number five, this is important. Uh, within Smyrna, there was a sizable Jewish population. And this will become important as we wade through this letter. Jesus will talk about the opposition that the believers there in Smyrna were facing from some of the ethnic Jews who lived there. These Jews who were hostile to the gospel. These, these, these Jews who were hostile to the message and the thought that Jesus could possibly be the crucified, risen, reigning Messiah that they had rejected, that they had largely missed. Right? This is similar to what we see in the book of Acts. Throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he is so often opposed by Jews who, who don't want to hear the message of Jesus being the Messiah. Well, the believers in Smyrna were facing a very similar threat and obstacle. Next, and this is huge, number six. Smyrna was an important city in establishing, furthering, and promoting the idolatrous Roman imperial cult. And again, this is, this is huge. The people of Smyrna, they knew who had the power. The people of Smyrna knew who buttered their bread. The people of Smyrna could see the handwriting on the wall and they knew you wanted to have Rome as your friend. Yes you did. You wanted to be in the good graces of Rome and of the various Roman emperors. So they did everything that they could to ingratiate themselves to Rome and to the various emperors. They were at the front of the Roman emperor worshiping parade. They were waving the flags and they were twirling the batons and they were holding the signs promoting the worship of roman emperors they loved this they thrived on this they believed listen that this would give to them safety and riches and honor if they just sided with rome and stayed close to rome in fact bible commentator alan johnson he describes smyrna's devotion to rome this way he writes smyrna repeatedly sided with Rome in different periods of her history, and thus earned special privileges as a free city and a size, that's a self-governed town under Tiberius and successive emperors. Smyrna was a center of emperor worship, having won the privilege from the Roman Senate in AD 23 over 11 other cities of building the first temple in honor of Tiberius. Under Domitian, in AD 81-96, emperor worship became compulsory for every Roman citizen on threat of death. Once a year, a citizen had to burn incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar, after which he was issued a certificate. So you would do this. You would, you would throw your incense into the fire and you would, you would say that Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Curios, and then you would get your certificate. You, would get, you could frame it on the wall and put it, I'd see, I'm faithful to Rome. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And then he writes this, Alan Johnson, such an act was probably considered more as an expression of political loyalty than religious worship. And all a citizen had to do was burn a pinch of incest and say, Caesar is curios. Yet most Christians refuse to do this. Amen. Perhaps... Nowhere was life for a Christian more perilous than in this city of zealous emperor worship. What a place to live. What a a place to be a Christian. What a place to represent Jesus. Do we have something to learn from believers who who had to walk this line? Who had to resist this kind of forceful, in-your-face kind of idolatry and, and pressure? Yes we do. Yes we do. Which brings us to our last point of background, number seven, noted on your outline, in the midst of such hostility, in the midst of such idolatry and in-your-face aggression, we see this, Christ's church is victorious. (laughs) True saving faith does not fail. True saving faith does not fail. The fact is, we don't know exactly how or when this church in Smyrna was was founded. This particular church, it is not discussed anywhere else in Scripture. It's not described anywhere else in Scripture. It is possible that, that that the Apostle Paul helped to establish this church in Smyrna while living in Ephesus during that two year period that's described in Acts 19. Perhaps believers went from Ephesus to preach the gospel in Smyrna, and that's how the church was formed. Or, perhaps people came from Smyrna to Ephesus, heard the truth of the gospel, and then returned to Smyrna and the church began to thrive and began to grow there the fact is we do not know we cannot say for sure but what we do know is this what Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church the gates of hell will not prevail against the true faith of those who follow Christ what we can say for sure is that Jesus loves this church He does. Jesus loves this church. He has not abandoned this church even in the midst of the idolatry and even in the midst of the persecution and the pressure that they were facing. Jesus has an earth-shattering, world-reorienting, strength-producing word of encouragement for these believers and praise God for us as well. For everyone who has ears to hear, this message is for you as well. So as we look at verses 8 to 11, we're going to hang our thoughts on four main points. And they're this divinity, clarity, stability, and then lastly, victory. This seems to be the general flow of Jesus's message to this, to this precious church. So first divinity, look again at verse eight. Jesus says, and to the angel, that is to the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, as with each letter, this opening section uh, contains a unique description of Jesus that is entirely appropriate to this church and to this situation, and to this context that these believers find themselves in. So note this on your outline. As we think about divinity, we recognize that as God, as creator, as conqueror of death, Jesus here, he guarantees victory for his people. That's, that's what this opening comment communicates. This opening description of Christ communicates. First, this, this identification where Jesus calls himself the first and the last. What is so fascinating about that is that is exactly what the God of Israel claimed to be for himself. If, 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 if you read Isaiah 44, verse 6, you find this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And here, what does Jesus tell this church at Smyrna? I am the first and the last. This is an unmistakable claim to deity. Jesus claims to be God, to be the first faithful God, to be the covenant keeping God, to be the God who loved his people throughout the Old Testament and who rescued them and led them and and and, and, and delivered them. Listen, Jesus is not confused about who he is. We may be confused about who Jesus is. He is never confused about who he is. He is not one of many gods. He is God, the true God, the creator God, the one who is one with the Father and one with the Spirit. But that's not all that Jesus says about himself here. He's the first and the last. He's also the one who died and came to life. I like what John Wolverd writes about this verse saying, He, Jesus, is not only the eternal one in relation to time, but the resurrected one in relation to life. Like Christ, the church at Smyrna should anticipate ultimate victory, even as the grave could not hold Christ. And he is now described as the one who lives, symbolizing his triumph over death, rejection and mistrial, So they too could anticipate their ultimate victory. See the point, the point is this, if you're in a situation where, where you are facing possible imprisonment, wrongful trial, even execution and death, somebody who was executed and came back to life, they sound pretty good about right now. They they sound like somebody who is worth following, someone who is worth listening to, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is helping the church at Smyrna remember His deity, remember His resurrection, remember His conquering of death. Jesus, as the first and the last, He transcends time. He is not bound by time. He rules and reigns supreme over time, elevated above time, sovereign through time. But Jesus, as the one who died and came to life, He transcends this earthly existence. He conquered death. He defeats death. He is life itself. He offers the promise of His life. He gives life to any and all who trust in Him. So, church in Smyrna, the point is from the very get-go, without knowing even anything that is about to follow, church in Smyrna, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Why? Because your king is the first and the last. Your king is the one who died and who rose. The one who, in fact, conquered death. So, we move from deity now to clarity. We move to clarity. Look at verse 9. Jesus gets right to the point. I know. Now, stop there for a moment. Remember, Jesus says this to every church. Jesus tells every one of his churches, that he knows. He always knows. He knows the conditions that they are facing. He knows the reality of their heart. He knows the joys that they, that they rejoice over. He knows the troubles. He knows their losses. So Jesus says, I know. What does Jesus know? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. What else does Jesus know? He says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Note this on your outline. Here we see clarity. Though believers may look to be poor and beaten down, we are in fact rich. We are in fact rich. Jesus brings clarity to the reality of their situation. Yes, They were experiencing much tribulation. Yes, they were being, and brothers and sisters, that word tribulation, it refers to pressure. (laughs) Pressure. They were being squeezed from all sides. Pressure was... Present pressure to burn incense to Caesar pressure to forsake Christ pressure to just go along and get along with the world pressure to forget Jesus and to think much more of physical comfort than faithfulness to Christ. Dr. Keith Kunda describes this word, tribulation, this way in his commentary. He writes, the word tribulation, it describes lying on your back and having a large stone put on your chest so that it gets harder and harder to breathe. The weight of that stone gets heavier and heavier and heavier until you finally die because you can't take a breath anymore. That's what the word is describing. That was the kind of pressure they got from the emperor cult. Brothers and sisters, we we need to understand life in Smyrna was hard. There was intense tribulation. There was intense pressure. And it resulted in what? Jesus says here, it resulted in poverty. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now this word poverty, it refers to Abject poverty. It refers to total poverty, complete poverty, like you own nothing. Like you lack basic necessities of of food and water and clothing and, and, and shelter. And most likely, these believers, they were being discriminated against economically because they refused to offer this incense to Caesar and to say that Caesar is Lord. They refused to do what everybody else was doing. They refused to play nice. They refused to worship the emperor. They refused to go along with with what would supposedly give safety and peace with Rome. So the attitude was, yes, let them starve. They deserve it. They don't deserve to eat. They don't deserve to get a good paycheck for the work they do. They don't deserve to get hired for a decent job. They are putting us all at risk. They are undermining our whole system. They are, they are attacking the very thing that keeps us in the good graces of Rome. They are threatening our way of life. They are saying there is only but one God, and you can only know this God through, through their dead, crucified, risen Messiah that we can't even see, that they don't even have physical idols of for us to look at. They're threatening the whole thing. Let them starve. Let them go. Let them burn. They deserve it. That was the attitude of the day because when you push on people's physical well-being, you find out what's really in their heart. And the people of Smyrna were in love with their riches. They were in love with their safety. They were in love with the status that they enjoyed with Rome. Please note this on your outline. This is so encouraging. This is so helpful. In verse 9, when Jesus uses the word your, it is a singular your, referring not to the church in general, but to each individual believer. Jesus is saying, when he says to the church, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, he's saying, I know what you as an individual are experiencing. Okay, listen, Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying, hey, I know that the church in general is dealing with some stuff. I know that, that the church in general, it's been hard, life has been, de- I know that generally these, that these things are true. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I know your tribulation. You as an individual, I know the poverty that you are dealing with. I know the persecution that you as an individual are experiencing. And what does Jesus say to these believers? What does Jesus say about these believers? What does he say when he looks at Them Something that they probably don't even recognize about themselves. Look again at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You are rich. The world, the unbelievers in Smyrna, looked at these believers and you know what they said? Poor, pathetic, sad, miserable loser. Do you know what Jesus says? When he looks at these believers, rich, beloved, treasured, secure, blessed, citizens of, of my kingdom, those who will share in my coming glory. And, and, and here's, here's the point. For all of eternity, these dear believers will live according to Jesus' judgment, not the judgment of the world. For for all of eternity, they will live in response and under the banner of what Jesus declares to be true of them. Because the point is this, whatever Jesus calls something, it is. If Jesus says, you are rich, guess what? For all of eternity, you are rich. You are beloved and treasured and called together to share in his life and in his glory. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he he says the most counterintuitive thing to his followers. He says, Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so it's true that, yes, for a for a, a number of decades, for a number of years, these believers in Smyrna, they would experience pain, pressure, poverty, and then, for all of eternity, the riches of Christ. That's it, for all of eternity, the riches and the glory and the comfort of Christ. And brothers and sisters, here's the beautiful thing. This is true of all believers who are faithful to Christ. This is why these seven letters have been preserved, not just for Smyrna and not just for Ephesus, but as Ray talked about last week, for all believers to learn and to benefit from. This is true of all believers, of all those who persevere, of all those who continue to follow Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us. Notice the us. This is for us. He says, this is working for us to prepare what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is what... Jesus wants this church at Smyrna to see. This is what Jesus wants us to see whenever we experience, and we do whenever we experience pressure and tribulation and persecution of any kind. We need to see with eyes of faith to the riches of Christ that belong to us in Him. This is this is what Christ is calling us to, to see beyond the trial, to see beyond the pressure, to see beyond the persecution of what is real, of what is to come, of what is true for all of eternity. And yet, it still hurts in this moment. Right? It does. It still hurts in this moment. The pain is real the trials are real the sorrows are real the tears are real does it hurt physically yes to be rejected and hated for the name of Christ it does does it hurt to be verbally persecuted to does Jesus tell the church at Smyrna remember sticks and stones may break my bones but words can never hurt me no No, that is crazy. No, Jesus, in fact, Jesus acknowledges the reality and the struggle and the pain that they were experiencing physically. And he also addresses the verbal insults, the verbal slander that they were experiencing as well. Look at the end towards the end of verse 9. Jesus says that he knows, he knows the slander, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. So, as we talked about earlier, there was a sizable, significant Jewish population in Smyrna, and many of them refused to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. And instead, they chose to curse Christ. They chose to curse the people of God. They said that these Christians, that especially these 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 Jewish Christians who had uh, who had professed faith in Christ, they said that they had betrayed the God of Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and and, and and Jacob. They said they were following in fact a false dead Messiah. Uh, they they rejected their testimony and the power of God and the reality of the Holy Spirit at work in them. These They claimed to be a synagogue of worship to the one true God, but Jesus says something very different about them. Jesus says something very, that that they were in fact, according to Jesus, they were a synagogue of Satan. They were not aligned with the one true living God, but against the one true living God with Satan himself. And this is not the first time that Jesus has said something like this. Back in John chapter 8, when Jesus was confronting the religious Jews and the religious leaders of his day for their unbelief, he warned them with these. These words, saying, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. This is the source of the hostility and the hatred that these believers in Smyrna were, were experiencing, that it was satanically driven and satanically motivated, that Satan was using these Jews to attack the people of God. And, and by the way, just in case you're keeping score, this is the first time that Satan has now been mentioned in the book of Revelation, but it will not be the last. It, it it will not be the last. We will see the hatred of Satan and the deception of Satan and the ultimate destruction of Satan in chapters 2, 3, 9, 12, 13, and 20. The point is this. Jesus is not shy when it comes to talking about the ultimate defeat of satan jesus is not shy the book of revelation is not shy Uh, god wants his people to see and to understand where all of human history is in fact heading and that christ will be victorious so while these believers they will experience persecution and pressure and poverty for a time they are in fact rich loved secure and victorious in christ So now we move from divinity to clarity to now stability. Stability in adversity. Okay, look at the first part of verse 10. Jesus says to these believers, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, that's a word that means stand amazed, consider this, behold. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. Please note this on your outline. Stability in adversity. The point is, have no fear. Why? Because Jesus is testing your faith. Jesus is at work refining your faith. Yes, Satan is going to do his thing. He hates the people of God. He would gladly drag us all off to hell with him but what is jesus doing what is jesus accomplishing while some of his children are thrown into prison what what good thing is jesus pursuing what is he about you see it right in the middle of verse 10 that you may be tested that you may be tested Brothers and sisters the fact is this i i beg of you never forget this never never succumb to the lies of the evil one satan is not winning the day he is not he he has never been winning the day Amen. not not for one moment he is not undoing the plan of god god is actually using him to test his children. He's using him to help refine and to sharpen and to shape his children. And listen, praise God that he does. Amen. Praise God that he does. Your faith needs to be tested. Yes. I, I say that with no... Even though I just said praise God that he does, I want to say that with joy. I have a hard time saying that with joy. Your faith needs to be tested. My faith needs to be tested. Do you realize what this means? Do you realize what, what we are saying when we say things like this? When we, when we, when we talk about the fact that we need to be refined, that we need to be more conformed to the likeness and to the image of Christ, that we want to become a more clear picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is that we want to be a more faithful witness to the grace and the mercy and the power of Christ you do you realize what we are asking for or what we are after when we talk about things like that do you do you remember what what Jesus said to Peter before Peter would would betray him three times in, in Luke 22 Jesus told him Simon Simon behold Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat and then here is Jesus's comforting word of assurance to Peter I've prayed for you I have prayed for you I have prayed for you what have you prayed Jesus what have you prayed for me that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, brothers and sisters, that is the language of repentance. That is the language of failure and recovery, of of sin and of turning again back to Christ. When you have turned again, do what? Strengthen the brethren. Strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, listen, Peter needed to learn some lessons about his own weakness. You need to learn some lessons about your own weakness. Peter needed to learn some lessons about the power of God's love and forgiveness and his grace. He did. Arrogant, quick-thinking, quick-speaking Peter needed to learn some lessons about the grace of God. Peter needed to understand more of the glory of Christ's interceding work on his behalf. We need to learn lessons about the glory of Christ praying for us. Peter needed to experience yet again the blessings of humble repentance the blessings of humble repentance. Peter, and he needed all of this why. What's the last thing that Jesus says to Peter here so that he could more effectively strengthen the brethren, that he could minister to brothers and sisters in Christ. So does God have a plan for every one of his children? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Does it involve the testing of your faith? Yes, it does. And the refining of your faith? And the sharpening of your character into the likeness of Christ? And is it always pleasant? (laughs) Not. No. In case you were wondering. No. The, The answer is no. And yet, what is the first thing that Jesus says to this church in verse 10? Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Why? Why? Why should they stop being afraid of what is to come? Why should you stop being afraid of what is to come? Why should I stop being afraid of what is to come? Listen, because Jesus not only knows the future, he controls the future. He guides and directs the future. He has a plan and a purpose to use even the painful and the hard things of life, things like prison and poverty and persecution for the good of his people you know in in, in psalm fifty six David writes these words psalm fifty six eleven he says, "In God, I trust, I shall not be afraid and Then he asks the question that bothers me so much, yes, what can man do to me?" I I read that and I'm like I can think of some things right what can man do to me I can give you a list and and they are they're all painful and they all sound awful and they all all sound miserable so why does David begin by saying in God I trust I shall not be afraid what is the source of this not being afraid because we remember that we are in fact despite how things may look at times we are safe in our Savior's hand we are safe in His sovereign love for us. And those hard, difficult things, they actually come to us through His sovereign hand, through His gracious hand to us. They are, if I can say it this way, they are painful tools of grace meant to test us, to refine us, and to sanctify us for our good. This is why Paul could say in Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is a faith-building verse. That is a world view shaping verse that we would do well to meditate on and to memorize. But now, before we move on to verse 11... We need to address, and you probably noticed that I skipped it thus far. We need to address the most peculiar part of verse ten. It's the part again we haven't talked about. It's the part that nobody can agree on, and, it, and it's surrounding the ten days. Okay, Jesus says right in the middle of verse ten, and for ten days you will have tribulation. So, what what are these? 10 days. And why does Jesus give them such an oddly specific uh, amount of time, such an oddly specific number of days? Well, as you read various commentaries and study Bibles, I mean, opinions are all over the map. In fact, it's kind of funny. It was entertaining for me to just read lots of commentaries and, and, and study Bibles and to see all of the different ideas and theories that are floating around about what this 10 days means. Here are a few. Perhaps these 10 days represent 10 seasons, 10 seasons of unique and special pressure and testing that God would bring upon these believers. Or perhaps these 10 days refer to a relatively short period of time when compared to eternity. All right, so 10 days, not a long time. Eternity, eternity, a really long time all right perhaps perhaps these 10 days refer specifically to Ten years of persecution, persecution that the church would experience under the reign of Diocletian. Or perhaps these ten days are referring generically to fullness and completion. Sometimes when you see that word ten used in scripture, it does refer to fullness and completion. So perhaps God is saying here, I will give you ten days of persecution, ten days of testing, meaning the right amount. I won't give you less than you need. I won't give you more than you need. I will give you 10 days. I will give you the right amount. Or perhaps these 10 days simply mean. 10 days! Perhaps Jesus is telling his church that they will experience unusual uh, persecution and intense pressure for literally 10 days. I think this could be the case. Or perhaps, and I kind of like this interpretation, uh, perhaps this is a reference to, this is a throwback to something that we read in Daniel chapter 1. Because remember that the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, they share a special relationship. They are both Uh, Much of it is apocalyptic literature and it shares some of the similar uh, imagery and some of the just the graphic powerful images that are displayed there. And so as you look at Daniel chapter one, we see that Daniel and his three friends, they have been taken they are being tested and they might be chosen to serve in the king's court. And part of that is they are told to eat food from the king's table. And they are told to drink wine from, 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 from the king's table as well. But this is a problem for Daniel and his three friends because it would violate the dietary restrictions that God had given to his people. And so listen to what Daniel says to the steward who is placed in charge of him. Daniel says this, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat at the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for... Ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So here, these ten days of testing for Daniel and his three friends, what did they prove? What did they reveal? That they belonged to the one true God, that they were being blessed and used by the one true God. So perhaps uh, this is a reference back to that time. Now, brothers and sisters, Here's the point. However you interpret these ten days, wherever you land, you should see clearly from this text at least three things. Number one, God absolutely knows what is best for you. He does. He knows what is best for you, not only in the trial itself, but in the length of the trial. Secondarily, we should recognize God does have a plan to test our faith to reveal our faith, to refine our faith. He does. And thirdly, God does not waste the pain in our lives. God does not waste the trials, but he uses them for our good. We can and we should say with Paul from Romans 5, 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So finally, now we come from deity to clarity to stability. Now lastly, to victory, to victory. Look at the very end of verse 10 on into verse 11. Jesus says, but I have this against you. It's not there. But I see this problem in your life. But I need you to fix this. No. There's no word of correction, no word of rebuke, simply an encouragement to continued faithfulness. Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So please note this on your outline. Here we see the victory that Christ gives and promises to his people. And the point is this. Those who die without Christ will rise to die again. But those who conquer, meaning those who are in fact faithful to Jesus, they will have, they will experience fullness of life and joy forever with with Christ. And listen, just to be crystal clear on this point. Jesus is not here now teaching a works-based salvation, as if we earn our salvation through our faithfulness to Jesus. No, Jesus is emphasizing the fact that those who truly love him, those who truly have saving faith, they will persevere. They will press on. They will continue to follow him and to be faithful to him. That is a defining mark of true saving faith. And so Jesus calls his people to be faithful to him. How long Jesus says, be faithful to me unto death now. And and let me just say this. I know we're running out of time and this isn't in my notes, but this will be my one and only rabbit trail. I promise. Okay. So, so, so the point is when he says be faithful unto death, so many people look at that and they're like, Oh, that's it. Jesus is calling me to die for him. Wrong. He's calling you to live for him. Be faithful faithful unto death. Somehow we glamorize and we have these fantastical thoughts in our mind about one day in the future, I'll die for Christ. One, someday, 30, 40, 50 years, someone will break into my house and they say, renounce Christ or die. And, and brothers, that may happen. Okay, that That may happen. But if that is your focus, and you're not concerned about how you're living for Him today, what gives you any confidence that you would die for Christ if you won't live for Him? That's the point. He says the emphasis is on the be faithful. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful until that moment when you die and you go to be with Christ and you see His glory. Be faithful Unto death. So Jesus calls his people, yes, to be faithful forever. Now, how can Jesus do this? I mean, it's almost as if he believes that he's the most important thing in life, right? It's almost as if he believes that he's worthy of your complete and entire love and devotion. It's almost as if Jesus believes that he is our greatest good that he is our ultimate treasure, that he is the fountain of life. Exactly. He is. He is worthy. He is our greatest good. Now, you may wonder, though, you read verse 10 and wonder, I wonder how many believers from Smyrna did die for their faith in Christ. We know of at least one. No doubt there were others, but we know of at least one. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, who personally knew and sat under the teaching of the apostle John Polycarp and this is amazing Polycarp who may have been alive at Smyrna when this letter was first given to the to the to the church at Smyrna Polycarp late in his 80s after serving as a as an elder there for many years he was arrested because he would not burn incense he would not say that Caesar is lord and when they came begging him to just Burn the incense. Just say that that Caesar is Lord. Just go along and get along. This was his answer. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Now, where did Polycarp learn to think like that? Where did, where did, where did he learn that, that, that to be in Christ and to die in Christ is gain? The answer is he learned it here. He learned it from Jesus and before the fires were lit that would take his life, he offered up this prayer. Polycarp said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. And I can tell you this, today, Polycarp does not regret his decision. He is glad to receive the crown of life. He is glad to walk in the fullness of life and in the fullness of Christ's joy. And as we think about the crown of life, as we think about the blessings of eternal life that Jesus promises, it is very interesting to note here that the very last thing, listen, the very last thing that Jesus says to this church at Smyrna is that if they conquer in him, if they are faithful to him, they will not be hurt by what? By the second death. Well, what is that? What is the second death? What is Jesus talking about? Well, the second death is true death. It is eternal death. It is complete separation from the goodness and grace and mercy of God. It is the reality of hell. It is the reality of wrath. It is condemnation before a holy God. And it is graphically portrayed and described in Revelation 2014 as misery in the lake of fire. We read this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what Jesus is talking about here. And this is what Jesus is promising rescue from. And so the point is this. If Jesus does not return in our lifetime, we will all one day die physically. We will. We will die physically physically, but you do not need to die again. You do not need to ever experience this second death. You need not ever experience or be affected by the judgment of the lake of fire. There is forgiveness. There is a life. There is victory. There is rescue, but it is only found in one place. It is only found in and through Jesus Christ. And this is what makes this letter to the church at Smyrna so relevant for every church, for every people of all time. This is why you must love Christ. This is why you must know him. This is why you must be faithful unto him. Jesus, who is the first and the last. Jesus, who died and came to life. Jesus, who is totally worthy of your love and trust. If you don't know Christ... We would love to talk with you and pray with you today. If you need some encouragement in your walk with the Lord to be faithful unto him, we would love to do that as well. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. There is nothing more important than love and faithfulness to Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we have studied your word this morning we pray that we would be those who are faithful unto death that we would be those who love christ who treasure him above everything above all things that his grace his power his life may be seen in us accomplish your good work in us and through us we pray it in jesus name amen If you would please stand and we'll close singing together.